Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory for our last Monday evening talk of the spring 2014 semester. I would like to remind you, though, we have one more public talk. It is two weeks from today on Monday, the 21st of April, but it will be at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's going to coincide with our theoretical astrophysics colloquia. Uh, Sir Roger Penrose will be in town, uh, retired of Oxford University, famous cosmologist and mathematician, and uh, he's here for this meeting on consciousness. Uh, however, uh, he's going to give a cosmology talk called Seeing Signals from Before the Big Bang, and I can't figure out how that can be done, so I'm interested to see what he has to say about it. So please, if you can make it, I suggest, since the parking regulations will be in force at 4 o'clock, easiest place to park is the Cherry Avenue garage next to the stadium. And I think it's $2 an hour until 5 o'clock, and then it goes to $1 an hour, and there's a maximum there. So I uh, hope to see some of you there on the 21st, and I believe there'll be a reception in the steward lobby afterwards for Sir Roger. Um, if there are any students here tonight, I don't, maybe there are a few. Um, I'm the person who will validate your assignment. I'll stamp it at the end of this. So there is a student in here. He's sitting in the back. Okay. I will validate your assignment at the end. And it's a beautiful night tonight. We have a first quarter moon. Jupiter's high in the sky. The Raymond E. White Jr. 21-inch telescope will be open for viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. So if you haven't looked through it or if you want to look through it again, please feel free. All right, so tonight we have our friend Major Gaines McGahey from the Grasslands Observatory to give one of his uh, lectures. Um, again, we, we call on Major McGahey to give us lectures uh, that's mm, a little bit off the beaten path of what you might used to be hearing. And uh, tonight we're going to hear about invisibility. But first, um, Major McGahey received his bachelor's degree, Bachelor of Science in Management from Georgia Tech University. That, he started at the University of Texas, then got drafted into the Army. Then he finished at Georgia Tech. Then he joined the Air Force. And while in the Air Force, from Webster College, he received two master's degrees, one in, economic, one in psychology, excuse me, and the other in management. Then he put in 20 years as an Air Force pilot, uh, also top secret clearance. Um, probably he knows what's in Area 51. Um, but he probably can't tell us where he have to kill us. Um, and then after retiring from the Air Force in 1991, he came here to Stewart Observatory and he got his master's degree in astronomy. He has his own private observatory here in town and down in Sonoida where he uh, calculates orbits and follows up on discoveries of near-Earth asteroids and EOs. Uh, objects of interest, but you've probably seen him on television, uh, on History Channel or National Geographic, on all those UFO type shows. He is a UFO investigator, and he's usually one of the main people that the journalists turn to to talk about why the object they thought they saw in the sky really wasn't a flying saucer from another planet. So, without further ado, we'll call upon Major Games McGehey to give us a treatise on invisibility. Major McGehey. Thank you. Okay, tonight I'm going to talk, am I coming through? 
Tonight, I'm going to talk about invisibility, which is a prominent idea both technologically in today's world, but also historically uh, mainly related to the occult, paranormal, and other things that aren't factual. So before we start, I'm going to talk, give a couple of definitions so we know what we're talking about tonight. When I'm talking about matter tonight and what can be made invisible, I'm talking about atoms and molecules, the normal protons, neutrons, and electrons uh, type of matter. Camouflage is the idea of concealment. You want to conceal something from view, and you do that by various ways of coloration, illumination, background, contrast, and countershadowing. And then what I call active adaptive camouflage, 2D camouflage, which is the technological camouflage of today, which a number of people in the scientific community are calling invisibility, and it is not. Um, it's something very, very different involving the way they do it. And then cloaking, a term that's more attuned to science fiction than it is to this, but really just simply means to hide something. And then the visible spectrum, which is the thing we're going to talk about. If you're going to talk about invisibility, you need to talk about what we're talking about in the sense of what range of wavelengths are you looking at, and I'm going to be talking about the wave, wavelengths the human eye can see, which is basically from 4,000 to 7,000 angstroms. Then transparency, an idea, a, a concept of, around a, a types of materials that some people think is invisible, but it's not, such things as glass and water, having to do with the fact that some of the light can go through transparent materials, but not all of it. Illusion and vision, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the concepts of illusion and human vision that it's all real or it's not real. In fact, much of human vision is not real. And then we're going to talk about the idea of refraction, reflection, scattering, absorption, which is the most important concept when you're talking about a material and how light interacts with it. And then finally, the electromagnetic radiation, which this is all about. This is how we, as human beings, see. We see nothing without it. It's basically the energy emission from a transverse wave oscillating an electric and magnetic field producing, produced by a charged particle that's being accelerated. And this is commonly, the quantum of this is the photon. So this idea of the invisible realm has been around since humans have thought about this in the form of spirits and ghosts and other monsters and things. And then as religion evolved, it became more into uh, angels and fairies and gods, and then more recently, extraterrestrials. Now, this concept of how humans think about the universe, in the very early times that date back 
into the five to 10,000 year range. The world was thought of in a very magical way, much more so than today, and it was centered on the human and centered around spirits or gods and trying to relate those to human beings. And very often these spirits and gods were invisible. And they were also very ugly and angry as well. Then as religion started to come into being and get codified, the universe became very mythic in its shape. More anthropomorphic, powerful gods, and creation myths. And then about 400 years ago, astronomy really developed when Galileo came along and sort of killed these ideas of the magical, mythical universe and replaced them with this idea of a universe based on reason and science. But it's still to this day, people want to connect this to a meaningful idea that somehow the universe has meaning and it's magical. And of course, this connection between the gods and the earthly realm today very often takes this form. And well over half the people in the world believe that these are real and flying around in the sky right now. And the whole idea of invisibility in modern times, at least from a sort of a technical getting away from the spirits and, and ghosts and stuff, started with this magazine published in 1945, March of 1945, Amazing Stories. It was one of the most widely read magazines in the United States among teenage boys and young men. And they always had scantily clad women on the cover which had nothing to do with the story. But uh, what this story is, is what started the whole UFO phenomenon. The story is that there were two evil races, alien races on the earth that lived inside the earth, Delos and Delos, and they telepathically communicated with humans through a welding machine. Now, I'm not saying how great this is. This was started out as a science fiction story, but how it relates is these guys were invisible, and you can see how invisible they are in this cover. But, of course, more recently invisible UFOs, this is Hale Bopp, that I took the very night that a group called Heaven's Gate decided to go join this invisible UFO flying in the tail of the comet. And I was later on television with one, the, in one individual who was not there that night and who didn't kill himself, but he killed himself after he was on Geraldo Rivera with me. Uh, I feel no guilt whatsoever about that. At uh, any rate, more recently in Phoenix, uh, it's quite amazing that these lights were in the sky, 
and it was an invisible UFO. You can clearly see, this is a photograph, and you can't see the UFO here. But, you know, alien spacecraft fly here from another world, and then they turn their lights on, which they're invisible, but they turn their lights on, so you have to be the judge of that. Now, the sky is full from a mythical standpoint of all kinds of luminous orbs, heavenly substance, mysterious and powerful forces. And the invisible realm, more so today, we have ghosts. This is the very famous photograph of the invisible ghost, uh, the brown lady here. Uh, obviously, it's a hoax. And over here, this is just taken recently. This is an invisible alien. Again, I'm not quite sure why he's invisible when you can see him here. And on science fiction, of course, you have the Klingon uh, ship here uh, that was cloaked very often in Star Trek. And of course, you have the wonderful uh, various goblins and ghosts and stuff in more recent times. But invisible, the invisible realm really is about all of this. Illusion, imagination, fantasy, myth, the supernatural, superstition, the occult, and very much so today, salvation and doom. We have this idea, and many people get tied up in this, of somehow Something about the world, the universe, aliens coming here is either to kill us all or to save us all. And it sort of all gets blended together. Now, talk a little bit about human vision so we can understand what we're talking about. Human vision is very, very frail and very much not real in what it does. Most of the time, it sort of gives us a reality perspective, but sometimes it doesn't, and I'm going to talk about that. Vision is very much tied to contrast, uh, various motions. This is, uh, some of these things are obviously related biologically, evolutionarily, so that we could survive many years ago. Uh, millions of years ago when our ancestors, but they cause all kinds of things such as filling in the gaps which aren't there and just making something up. Now, what vision is, is an abstraction of actual reality. It is not reality, it's an abstraction. The eye and brain construct a guess of what actually is being seen. It's a construction. And it's based on the idea that the eye is constantly moving and attempting to look at what is going on in front of it. Color is purely physiological. It's purely an illusion. Color does not exist. It's a creation of the brain. And it has a very, the one thing the human eye does have is a very large dynamic range. Now, this connection between the eye and the brain is very sophisticated. The idea here is, and this is fairly recent discovery, that the actual cells 
in the eye here actually do some of the processing and some of the analysis. It's not all done actually in the brain. When light enters, enters the eye, it comes in this way and goes to the back and then is processed back this way. And as you can see here, as it comes in, here's the, 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 the two cells that are responsible for your vision, rods and cones back here, uh, one for color vision, one for low light vision. So this is what you have to do with. The eye is a very poor optical system. It has low resolution, severe chromatic aberration, and severe astigmatism, both of which are taken out, processed out by the brain. You see things very, very sort of speckly and grainy. That's what the eye actually sees, but the brain processes that and smooths it all out. Most of the time it smooths it out okay, sometimes it doesn't. Also, the process of the eye is really key to this idea of contrast, edges, and color comparison. You only see color by comparing two color, uh, two color cones in the eye which begs the question, this is monochromatic light. You see it as green. It's impossible for the eye to see that. What's happening is that that comparison process that's going on in the cones is making a guess because it has nothing to compare against. And so here's just a few of the things that the eye makes mistakes on, perception, omission, adaptation, edges, sharpness, and contrast. And it fills in the gaps. It connects the dots. This is very much of an idea of when people see lights in the sky at night, they connect the dot and they see something some mile across. It creates an expected reality. You what you expect to see is what you're going to see unless you put a huge amount of effort to override what the brain is doing. Color is an illusion, and then of course edges, shapes, and motion is the primary way that vision works. Now, here's an example of just an example of how vision has a flawed mechanism. You clearly see a human face here. But this is nothing but the Mars face. It's nothing but a rock outcrop, rock outcrop with shadows. But more importantly, over here, you see a human face that's made up of nothing but three circles and a line. But you still see it because you want to see it. You're trying to make something out of what you're seeing and what you're going to make out of it, in this case, is a face. Now, the way this works in vision uh, and color vision is the fact that the rods and the cones, and this is a spectrum here of vi uh, basically visible light from about 4,000 to about 7,000 angstroms. And you can see, or nanometers if you prefer, 400 to 700, you can see the, the, the rods is where you get your dark vision, your night vision. It has no color. But color comes from the 
short, medium, and long wavelength colors. And you'll notice that this is where they're centered at these three particular places. Interestingly enough, this center right here, 5,330 angstroms, is almost exactly what this laser pointer is, and there's a reason for it. That is where your eye is the most sensitive to color and to daylight uh, vision. So there's no happenstance that these green pointers have become very popular because they're easy to see. But in order to see color, you have to have color in both of the, in two of these three band passes, under this curve, under this curve, or under this curve, or you can't see color. The brain then has to make it up. And the spectrum going from about here to here is about what you can see visually. And you see these are various absorption lines in the spectrum. And hydrogen alpha right here, uh, uh, one of the more prominent emission lines in the, in the sky. And here's the entire electromagnetic spectrum. You can see the visual piece that we can actually see is just this little tiny piece here, which is right here. And you can see infrared is up here, then you get up into microwaves and radio and x-rays and gamma rays, ultraviolet down at this end. And tonight we're going to take a look at this range and the visual and then the near infrared and over here at the longer infrared with some instruments and see what you can actually see there, which you can't do with normal vision. And this, this is a black body curve of the sun. This is basically the light emission of the sun. And you can see the light emission peaks right here at 5,300 angstroms, which is basically what this laser is at, and also happens to be green, which means the sun is primarily green. Most people have never noticed that because the sun is so intense and so bright you can't really see the color. Now, let's go on to what obscuring ideas here. This is an image of the center of the galaxy. It's about uh, two degrees by three degrees when I took it to grasslands. You can see the center of the galaxy here. I'm sure you all can see it, correct? It's actually right there. Um, but you can't actually see the center of the galaxy because there's so much dust and gas between us in the center of the galaxy, it totally obscures, totally hides the center of the galaxy in visible wavelengths. Now, if you go just a couple of degrees away, well, let me back up here, there's about 5,000 stars on this image. I have a program that counts stars. But if you go a couple of degrees away, where there's not quite so much gas and dust between us and the center of the galaxy, same field of view, there's 15 million stars on this picture. The only difference is the gas and the dust when you look out in that direction is so much of it, it obscures the background. But if we look in infrared, we see something very different. Because the infrared can penetrate the gas and the dust. This is the center of the galaxy in infrared. And if you blow that up and take an X-ray version of it, you see this is the center of the galaxy. And right there is a black hole at the center of the galaxy. 
you're not seeing the black hole, you're seeing the glow of the material around the black hole that's being shredded by the gravitational collapse into the black hole. And it glows there. And you can see this is something very interesting that happened. There was a flare at the center of the galaxy in X-ray when probably some larger chunks of material fell into the black hole and this light was emitted. Now, the atmosphere plays with a lot of what we see and what people think, making very interesting phenomena in the sky that are also very magical. The sky being very magical, you have various things of halos and glories and these phenomena that last a short period of time and very often some are not very common. This is just a few of the things that can be seen in the sky and often cause reports of mystical experiences. You can see uh, glories in particular and halos and mirages uh, that occur and then more rare phenomena such as St. Oil's fire and ball lightning, which I've seen while flying an airplane, which you definitely don't want to see while you're flying an airplane. The glory is a very interesting idea. It, it occurs primarily in foggy conditions at sunrise with the sun behind your back and as far as if you're on the ground. It also occurs in airplanes if you happen to be the sun behind you and you look out the window and you see a cloud below you. What happens is you're getting a refraction phenomena from the uh, fog and always wherever you're looking from will be the center of the glory. This is a human shadow here and this is the person with the camera to his face and looking into the fog bank. And of course, think about a monk 500 years ago standing on a little mountaintop with a fog bank and seeing this around his head. Have you ever seen that in some Renaissance art? Then, of course, we have mirages, uh, which uh, are, in fact, real in the sense that you can take a picture of them, but this is not real in the sky. And basically dealing with temperature and refraction indexes, causing things to appear above the horizon that aren't above the horizon. And most famous is uh, the sun uh, when coming, rising and setting, you actually see it before you see it above the horizon before it's actually above the horizon because of refraction. And you can get all kinds of strange effects changing the shape of the sun by refraction. Uh, and you actually can take a picture of. And then, of course, halos. Here we have basically a solar pillar. We have a sun dogs on either side, the halo, and a periarch here. Now, normally this occurs in the sky in ice crystals and clouds and cirrus clouds, but this is actually on a ski slope with the ice crystals floating just above the ground that cause this. And this is a cloud. Yes, it is a cloud. That's all it is. But you can see why this might be thought of as something else. 
and has been by many people. And then you can get strange things like this, smoke ring clouds. This is a series of photographs taken, first one this way, in 60 seconds. And you see how it changed. And then this is a more recent one that was uh, photographed. But these also cause all kinds of uh, mystical experiences for people, but they're quite natural, although rare. In the case of aircraft, uh, if you've got an aircraft flying very high, depending on the water vapor, you can get a shock front coming off the wings. You can get a very interesting phenomenon, particularly if this is seen at night by moonlight, can cause some very interesting effects. Now, illusions are a little bit different than actual uh, mirages in the sense that this is primarily all inside the head. It's created inside the brain. And many different effects where you see sizes and shapes and orientations different than they actually are in reality. For instance, which one of these black rectangles is longer? I think most of you will say this. They're exactly the same length. Which one of these monsters is bigger? They're exactly the same. Here's something that looks sort of like one of the British kings made entirely of fruits and vegetables and flowers. There's not another single thing in there. Yet you see a human face unless you really concentrate on what you're looking at. Then you have these many famous illusions. You see the waters falling down the fall. It runs back over here, runs back over here, runs back over here. And run. Whoop, wait a minute. How did it do that? Your brain is connecting this together in a non-real way. Which one is larger? They're both the same size. This is very interesting. This has to do with shadowing. You have A and B, which, which box is actually darker? They're both the same. You don't believe me? Well, let's draw a line between them. Or more importantly, let's cut them out. They're exactly the same. Now, I want you to concentrate on that black dot right there and tell me what you see. Most of you will start seeing that some of the outer rings start rotating. This is totally an illusion. There is nothing moving on that screen. It has to do with the idea of yellow and it, it, unfortunately, this screen is not as intense. The, uh, the projector is not quite as intense, the color. But when you put blue and yellow close together, you get all kinds of strange things in vision. 
And then the more famous moon illusion, the moon looks larger when it's closer to the horizon. It really does look larger. It is, in fact, not. In fact, the moon is actually 1.5% smaller when it's close to the horizon than when it's high overhead because it's 4,000 miles further away, half the diameter of the Earth. But because you're the, of the Ponzi illusion and the Edinburgh, Eddinghausen illusion, relating to area around the object you're looking at, in this case, makes something look larger. In fact, these two orange circles are exactly the same size. Now, talk a little bit about camouflage going into our invisibility. Camouflage is just concealment by disguise involving coloration, illumination, background, contrast, and counter-shadowing. So, here we have some camouflage back here and an object. This object is not invisible. It's hidden, but it's not invisible. There's something there. What is it? Now if we put some more camouflage on here in, over the object, and we don't know exactly the background. This is not the best camouflage, although it helps. You still don't know what's here. Now, if we put the camouflage over the object, you can clearly see that you cannot distinguish that there's even anything there. It's still not invisible. It's concealed. So what is it? This is a, uh, one of the uh, aliens out of one of the Outer Limits show that someone made into a little ceramic uh, statue. But it's not invisible. So let me just show you a little bit about camouflage here. Yeah, raise the screen. This lighting okay? Yeah. Oh, turn it up a little. Turn this the light up for this. Now, you'll see here, this is a, 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 what's called a ghillie blanket, uh, a camouflage. And you can see that if in modern world, some of you may be familiar with what this is. This was the standard camouflage in Vietnam. Um, and perfectly good for the jungle, but you can see in the desert environment, this is not a terribly good idea. It doesn't show up. It contrasts too much against the background. Nowadays, this is in a lot of science and uh, technology about how you see things. This is the standard camouflage that's used today 
in Afghanistan. And you can see that it blends much more into this background, which is sort of a deserty background. This also blends into light level, forest level. This is kind of interesting because this is a standard that sort of the military is thinking about going to. It doesn't look as interesting as that other camouflage. However, it actually works better because the human eye, because of the way it sees this. This is all about vision, how the eye sees this against the background. Now, if I were to take this, and I was hoping for a student volunteer. I don't see any student volunteers. Come on down. Okay. If we have, you're looking at this person here. What's your name? Peter. Peter. Okay, Peter. We're looking at Peter here, and your eye is doing a couple of things. One is picking up on the face. You're attracted to the face. If he moves his arm, you cannot not look at that. You will immediately move to it with your eye. You may not even sense it when he moves it. Also, the shape. You see the shape of his shoulders, the shape of his head. You pick up on that immediately. It's just the way human vision works. Now, if you conceal, throw the sheet over here. If you conceal him, you now see that you can't see the shape as easy. You're breaking up the shape. You can't see the shape as easily. You, if you didn't know that there was a human standing under the sheet, you wouldn't know this. You wouldn't know that there was a human here, but you do know that. Obviously, this doesn't work real well against the background. However, if you do this, come over here in front of this. Now, if we throw this instead of a white, you can see Oops, well, we got to get it on here right. <laughs> you can see now that against the background, it is very difficult to tell that there's even anything there. And this is basically all about vision and how it works. Thank you very much, Peter. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about transparency. There are transparent objects, and a lot of people think that a transparent object is actually invisible. It's not. As you can see here, and I'll be demonstrating it here in a second, this is a piece of glass. This is the same glass they make the big mirrors out of over at the mirror lab. It's borosilicate. You can clearly see through it but you also can clearly see it's not invisible. 
and it has to do with the fact that not all of the light in the visible range can go through it. Some of it is reflected, some of it is refracted, some of it's scattered, but not as much as in a normal sort of object that you think about. This is an interesting photograph from above of a glass kayak. And you can clearly see, that is, you can see through it and down into the water, which water is transparent as well. But you can also see that it's not invisible. Now, if we take a laser, in this case, uh, 5,320 angstroms, a green laser. This one's about 100 milliwatts. If I shine it on this, it clearly does not go through it. This is a nickel-iron meteorite. Um, so just like it doesn't go through that wall. But if I take a piece of glass, particularly one that has some interesting fractures on it, you can see that it makes a very interesting effect. You see the laser beam actually going through it, but as it goes through, it's refracting, scattering, and reflecting off various uh, fractures in the glass itself. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, we can, well, you want the glass again? Yeah, you do it again. Okay. Okay. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this idea of active adaptive camouflage or what a lot of people in that are working on this in the scientific field call invisibility. It's not. What it basically is, is an attempt to hide something, like camouflage, by somehow making the background look like the foreground. And this is done in a couple of different ways. One is to project, have some kind of very elaborate um, system of mirrors and crystals and then project an image of the background onto it. This is very large, cumbersome type process that probably will not go anywhere. But more interesting is this idea of attempting to bend light around the object. Now, just saying that means it's not invisible. To be invisible, the light, all light, must go in the visible range, must go through the object, being totally unaffected 
by the object and come out the other side. No such material exists. There's no way to do it, and why they keep calling this invisibility, I don't know. But they're attempting to take the light waves and bend them around the object so that the object won't be seen. The problem with this is, number of problems with this is, are that if you are looking at this, if it moves at all, it immediately displays the background because motion the eye picks up. But the real problem is that what you're doing in attempting to bend the light rays around the object is they're changing the index of refraction. And you can only do this in a certain way and in certain wavelengths, and it just doesn't work very well. It's an interesting scientific idea, but it's not invisibility. And they're doing this by using metamaterials and carbon nanotubes. And it's very interesting technology, but it's not invisibility, and it never will be. One of the most interesting things they've done is the ability to reduce the refraction index to less than one, which is a very interesting concept, but it only works in very, very tiny, narrow wavelengths of light. It doesn't work across the visual spectrum. Now, when we're talking about this, we're going to talk a little bit more about visible spectrum and IR, and I'm going to give a demonstration of this here in a second. This is the visible spectrum from about four to 7,000 angstroms here, this little tiny sliver here. We're going to be looking at this. We're going to be looking at the near infrared down here, which is this region right here, and the long infrared, which is right up in here, and take a look at how that looks. You can only see this, but remember, the reason we know about all of this is instruments. We have instruments that can see, detect, these other wavelengths. We cannot ever see these with the human eye. The idea of the charge couple device totally revolutionized science, and in particular astronomy, at being able to see these other wavelengths uh, because they're very, very sensitive. They have high quantum efficiency. They, uh, uh, the, these chips, as an example, my telescope at Grasslands is 24 inches in diameter. I can actually go fainter than the largest telescope in the world could with photographic film because of this, which sort of is a force multiplier to radically change what a small telescope can do in science. So it changed that overnight when these were developed. Interestingly enough, I don't know how many people realize what the CCD was developed for. It wasn't developed for an imaging system, it was developed to store information. And somebody realized after the fact that you could take images with it. What you see in most of your, sort of a, the brother of the CCD, what you see in, um, in most cameras that you have is a CMOS. And it's very similar to a CCD, but it works slightly different because each pixel 
is its own sort of little imaging system as opposed to in a CCD where the, it's an array that's read out. And what we're going to do, we're going to take uh, one of these little low-light video cameras here. These are designed for security. This one's been modified for science use uh, with a rheostat. This, this is the camera itself. It's a little tiny thing. But this is a rheostat system on it that I use for uh, asteroid uh, work, asteroid occultations. And they're relatively inexpensive, but they're incredibly sensitive. Your normal video camera, if you went down and spent $1,000 to buy a video camera at uh, some local store, it would be, the sensitivity of it would be about three or four lux, which basically means if the, even in a, a room with low light, you probably wouldn't see anything. Whereas this camera is one ten thousandth of a lux. It's very, very sensitive to low light. And it's also sensitive to the near infrared. And I'm going to sort of demonstrate that. This is an infrared illuminator, as you see right here. Uh, what it does is basically, you, when you turn it on, it's got a auto, it's got a photocell on it. It turns on only when the light goes down. What it does is emits light at about 8,500 angstroms. You can't see the light, but that this little camera can, and you can see how much more how much brighter it gets. And in fact, with a lot of systems today that are used for low light systems, an infrared illuminator is included as part of the system. For those who've never seen it, this is night vision goggles. They work completely differently. This intensifies light by an imaging tube. In other words, you, if you take this into a cave, you would see nothing because it has to intensify photons that are already there. However, this has an infrared illuminator on it. If you turn that on, this is incredibly sensitive to infrared so you can see in a cave. But if you don't have the infrared illuminator, you see nothing. This was originally developed by the military in Vietnam, and it was back then it was called a starlight scope. These have become very sophisticated today. This one is uh, not a goggle. This is a device that you wear on your head so that you can look, look through a scope on a rifle and have the uh, intensification. This particular one intensifies existing light 30,000 times. So even without the infrared. The thing that's interesting about it, it's got a cap on it with a little tiny hole because you don't want to turn this on in this room right now. Because if you do, and that caps off, it'll basically destroy the tube, the imaging tube in the, in the device. And then we're going to talk about a thermal camera, which is something completely different. It works off detecting emission. What we're, what we're talking here is detecting refraction and reflection and photons that you see off of, say, this laser. But a thermal imaging system is designed to detect emitted heat 
in the infrared coming off the object, and it does something entirely differently. So let's talk about this right now. Turn this guy on. This one has to be turned away, right? Right. So you want to Okay, yeah, turn turn this on. Okay, and we have too much light. Here, we'll go. No, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead and turn the lights down. Now, you can see this has a rheostat. I can turn up and down here. Let's see here what we set on. And you can see that even with this small amount of light in here, uh, you can still see this. There's, this is not intensifying, it's not doing, it's just detecting very, very low light from the Constitution over there. Now you see these LEDs on here right now? That has nothing to do with it, it's just telling you that it's on. You can't see that infrared light that's coming out of there. But watch what happens when I turn it that way. It's so bright now that I'm going to have to turn down the rheostat on this to even be able to see it because this is putting out so much infrared radiation that you can't see, but the camera can. And you can see And you can see how it sees that laser. That's with it all the way turned down. Now what I'm going to try to do here is turn down the aperture here and see if we can But you can see if I turn it all the way up that the IR, see if I just take the IR illuminator away, this is just existing light. And from this camera. So this camera is roughly about 60 or 70 times more sensitive just to ambient light than the human eye is. And it's just a video camera running. It's, just, uh, it's a little sophisticated sophi uh, uh, um, security camera that's set out on, uh, you know, for security purposes around buildings and so forth. What's interesting about it is that this is going out of style now because nowadays they don't like using this anymore because they just take one of these infrared illuminators and put it on a cheaper camera because the infrared illumination is good enough that it, it will, uh, for this camera, you don't need as low a sensitivity 
to actually see things. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let me turn that off. Here you go. Yeah, I'll show a couple of things while you're doing that. Um, now, if you see, you know, this is a laser. You can see the beam. This is one of the reasons this is used as a pointer. This is Raleigh scattering of the light in the air. If you were out in space, you would not see this beam at all. But you see, if you shine this into an H-alpha filter, you basically... Most of it is blocked by the filter. Uh, you can barely see some light from the intensity of it. If you take a filter that's closer to this, you see that you're getting a little bit of refraction off the glass. This is not really coming through. But this is actually an oxygen-3 filter, which is designed uh, uh, another wavelength in astronomy, uh, and it's very close to the wavelength of this. Now, this is an actual green photographic filter, and you see it's uh, totally unaffected going through here. But the idea of refraction and reflection, this is a, uh, a beam splitter. So if you put this light in here, you see half the light goes through, and you take a look up, you'll see half of it is going up to the ceiling. And of course, the classical reflection angle, if you just do that, you see it's reflecting at the angle of the light, and just to demonstrate reflection and reflection. Okay, now, as you can see, this is a thermal in imaging camera. This has nothing to do with any light in here. This is simply detecting the difference between the te my temperature and the air temperature. If everything in this room was exactly at the same temperature, that camera would see nothing. It distinguishes the difference between the air temperature, and you can see, obviously, as you look at you, your skin is hotter than the air around it, and you can see that that's what you're actually seeing. Now, if you want to make this even more interesting, this is a heat gun. It's not a hair dryer. This is, puts out 1,200 degree, and you will see that very quickly, that this is very bright. However, if you take a look over here,
You see as you heat up the wall here, you can actually see that. And of course now, even with the gun off, because the tip of the gun is so hot, you can see how hot, how it radiates, even much more so. The, the, it's actually saturating, that's why it's black around the, the point of the gun. And of course this is, uh, thermal imaging of course is used as well to see in low light, but it's really only valuable to see something that has a differential temperature. Uh, and it, as you also can see when you look at it, it doesn't particularly, it doesn't have particularly good resolution as compared to other methods of, of looking at things. And of course, the ultimate in refraction is to look at fiber optics and shine a laser through it. This is, this is basically a, a bundle of fiber optics and I'm putting the laser light through it and the laser is bouncing back and forth against the sides of these fibers and you can see uh, as you rotate it around what happens to in the refraction of it. Now, one other thing with light, here we have your classic UFO, and of course, through my extreme paranormal powers, I can make this UFO start to fly, uh, not really, it has a photocell in the top of it. Uh, but you can see that the photons coming from this flashlight, lighting that, powers a little motor in there that can turn this. Can we do it for the podcast, please? What? Can we do it for the podcast? Sure. <laughs> I've switched to the other one. <laughs> <laughs> and let me turn on lights. Okay. Light lights, so we have light here, we go. <laughs> now this gets sent to the podcast. Okay. okay. Ready? So oh, it, yeah, you got too, too much light we here. Still see it, we still see it turning. What about bring down the... Well, we have a universe where many things are forming, new stars, and actually these are brand new baby stars, but they're all, there's a whole group of stars right in here, not seen here, we know about through infrared, that are going to, gas that is collapsing right now, that any day now, in the next 10,000 years will become a star. And of course, 10,000 years is nothing in the cosmic scheme of things. And of course, there's many beautiful things in the sky as well. You can see here, this is stars that have formed and the gas that was in the 
process of forming them has been blown out into the shell. You can see how it changed over time. And we have stars that die and destroy themselves and blow their outer shells and leave nothing but basically a white dwarf behind. And then, of course, we have this huge universe that's composed of billions and billions of galaxies. As Carl Sagan used to say, billions and billions of stars. And in, in this image here, there are about 20,000 galaxies in the early universe. The only two things in this that aren't galaxies are these two foreground stars in our galaxy. And each of these has at least 100 billion stars in them. And while I was thinking about this talk, some people have suggested because of the issue of refraction, reflection, scattering, and absorption, what if there was some material that would do none of that? What an interesting concept. Of course, no material is known to be able to do that. But the interesting part about this would be that if you made something out of this material and then got inside of it, you would also not be able to see or detect anything outside of it whatsoever. But it still wouldn't be invisible because it would be so black, it would be a silhouetted against everything else in the universe and be totally visible, if you will, anti-invisibility. And then it dawned on me, this might be a perfect description of dark matter, an interesting idea to think about. The power of belief is very, very strong. The occult, magic, superstition, they all are counterbalanced against the ideas of science and reason. As I've said, invisibility for imaginary beings is essentially meaning that it's immaterial and that it's basically the product of the imagination and nothing else. Science came along about 400 years ago, and since then we've attempted to look at the universe in the form of reason and logic and the scientific method and try to discover what it really is, what is really correct, what is really true. Hopefully we will continue to do that. Thank you very much. I know we've run over a little bit. I'm, if there are one or two questions, and then we'll get you to the telescope, okay? Yeah, hi. I had a question about uh, <clears throat> what you were saying was 2D, um, where you can take uh, light and scatter it around the front of an object. Could you explain that a little bit? You mean with the adaptive camouflage? Yeah. And, yeah. And the what they're trying to do is, is and they've had some success at doing this, but it's not invisible. What they're trying to do is the light comes in, and they're attempting with these, this ma uh, 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 special technology material that they put in something in front of, you know, it's nothing more than putting a sheet in front of something, you know, of this material. And then what happens is the light hits it, and because they're able to change the index of refraction, to below one, they can sort of 
make the light rays appear to go around it so that it appears that this whatever you're looking at is synonymous with the background. That's how it works. There's huge problems in this, uh, and they've done it in little tiny scale models and at tiny scales, but the idea, it's not one, it's not invisibility, and two, even if they could make this work perfectly, they can only do it in tiny little narrow wavelengths at a time. So you could still see it as a point. Okay, <clears throat> because I remember, I didn't see it, but I remember hearing about it, that David Copperfield claimed he was gonna make the Statue of Liberty disappear. And I was thinking, was this? No, that's what? different, that's, that's a magical illusion. Do you have any idea how that was done? Oh, I, I do know, because, you know, James Randi uh, is a very good friend of mine. He's probably, in my opinion, the best magician who's ever lived and a wonderful skeptic. Uh, no, what they do when they make elephants and the Statue of Liberty and all that disappears, they set cameras up in some position, let's say right here. And then they have all the people that are watching it right next to the cameras. And then they set up a series of mirrors. And they move the mirrors in relationship. When they say they didn't do anything with the camera, that's true. The camera stays fixed. But what they do is change the mirror and angle. And they do it in such a way, even if you're fairly close to it, you can't tell but that something has disappeared. So. Think of it this way. Let's say you have 100 people, like David Copperfield does, standing in front of something here. And then behind it is whatever it is. And then they bring in, they bring in a big curtain in front of it. Then they move the mirrors in such a way behind it, and then they remove the curtain, and the object disappears because you're now looking at the mirrors, and they've got it in such a way that you're seeing past what the object is. It's just the angle of, the way they set up the angle of reflection on the mirrors, basically. All right. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, again, I'll remind you, two weeks from today at four in the afternoon, we have Sir Roger Penrose. And then we'll start these uh, lectures up again next September. So I look forward to seeing you then. Uh, the telescope is open. Uh, please take advantage of it. And let's thank Major McGahey one more time. <laughs>